Good. I see that the wall spaces are getting more and more popular there. Uh, did you know there is an unwritten law about the distance the audience seeks to the speaker is reciprocal to the appreciation of the... <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, rather than <coughs> talk more about my diagnosis tonight, uh, <laughs> I thought of uh, uh, using an august moonlit New Year's Eve for uh, the Brahma Viharas, the teaching on the sublime abidings, and I'd love to indulge your attention for this for uh, a moment. Um, when I started practicing meditation, some Something over 30 years ago, that's when it began uh, for real in some ways. Um, my first contact with the Brahma Viharas <coughs> was, more, was a rather contemptuous one. I, my basic understanding of these Brahma Viharas are, was that this is the sort of thing you do if you can't really meditate. Yeah? This is the soft option. Yeah, so there's people who meditate and who have samadhi and gain insight, and there's the other ones who are nice. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, I have come to some adjustment of my understanding in this over the, over the, over the years that ensued, and. Um, in fact, these Brahmaviharas have become more and more important in my own understanding, the weight they take in my practice, but also in my teaching. And I would almost venture to say that the Brahmaviharas are something that is greatly amiss in most Western societies. Uh, it becomes particularly obvious when it, uh, when you look at our health systems, for example. You know, they have very little to do with health. There's generally, uh, almost in all countries, they distribute wealth and money uh, for combating particular diagnostic uh, patterns. And the idea is that if you have cleaned up the, the pathologies, the, what remains is, is health. At the, at the, you know, what's left over is health. Now, that doesn't seem to quite pan out that way, according to my experience. And it is uh, one of the profound messages of the, I think, Buddhist teaching that these four Brahma-viharas, these four sublime abidings are basically the, the blueprint for health, the blueprint for happiness, the blueprint for anything to do with maturity, growth, sanity, development, realization, any of those you can't really think of in serious terms unless you have the Brahma-viharas as the background tapestry for these qualities or for these um, criteria. So the Brahma-viharas underpin any notion of development, any notion of realization, any notion of growth, any notion of health, any notion of harmony according to a Buddhist understanding. 
This um, teaching on the Brahma Vyaras has come down, as is the case with all other teachings, come down particular lineages. And some of these lineages have arrived in the West and take more prominence here in the West than maybe historically they would deserve. Yeah, so, but simply because they, by a historical fluke, have been the teachings that have be, uh, been picked up here in the West most uh, strongly or found most resonance, or just because a particular tradition or lineage that has, by historical circumstance, made its way in the West a little earlier than other lineages. So we have uh, a somewhat lopsided notion of many Buddhist teachings in my own books. We have only just started scratching at the surface of Buddhist wisdom traditions, and it's one of the pleasures of living in this confusing, chaotic, but also incredibly fertile times. I don't expect to see the uh, completion of the process of, say, a transition of Buddhist teaching really into the Western, um, Western ways of thinking, but I am pleased that this has begun for real by my reckoning. The Brahma Viharas will be one of the things we, I think, have to come to appreciate more deeply, not just as meditators, but also as um, basically human beings. These Brahma Viharas are um, they're so fundamental that it makes sense that we look at their message on, on differing levels. So I'd like to distinguish four different levels, but before I go there, something about the word. Yeah. Brahma is a Vedic deity, and you know Buddhists are polite folks, but not without mischief. So uh, the Buddhists have taken the whole pantheon of Vedic deities, uh, said, "Yeah, thank you very much. This is wonderful stuff. Well, let's park it here in the side altar. And by the way, you're impermanent." Yeah. <laughs> so they have <coughs> taken on board many Brahminical uh, figures and have parked them sort of in a respectful but slightly irreverential gesture uh, subjected them to uh, impermanence. So in Buddhism, uh, deities are Im as impermanent as human beings. They're, some of them last a little longer, but the basic principle of impermanence holds. So Brahma is a particularly luminous uh, creature who inhabits the Brahma Lokas, and he has a few friends, and that uh, light, uh, luminous creature is expansive, yeah, as is light. That's where the name comes from. In fact, the more common name for these Brahma Viharas, sorry I have to use a few Pali terms here, is called Appamanyas, Im <coughs> immeasurable ones. Yeah. In fact, more often than Brahma Viharas, they are referred to as Im the immeasurables. So these immeasurables are taking place in something called the citta. The citta is a continuum of experience. It's where we intuit the hub of our experience to take place. The Brahma-viharas take place in there as well and uh, in turn affect the citta. Think of the citta as something like um, a continuum in which you have resonance in which you have space, um, and, and yet it is not solid. Yeah. The citta can be lofty and cultivated. It can be 
um, collected, it can be expansive, but unfortunately it can also be easily seduced, it can be um, undeveloped, it can be clouded, it can be obtuse, it can be um, occasionally behaving like the proverbial monkey mind. That's a Pali term, by the way. Kapijitta is the monkey mind. Um, so, uh, the texts tell us that <coughs> the understanding of early Indian Buddhists was that the citta is both capable of immense good, capable of intuiting what is wholesome. It can be liberated, it can be purified, and it has an intrinsically luminous nature. Um, sometimes, though, it seems to fall prey to seductions of um, the great uh, poisons of mind, <laughs> greed, hatred, and delusion, and then the citta doesn't feel that expansive. It feels uh, contracted, it feels shriveled up, it feels tight, it feels dark. So, in many ways, the citta is the, uh, in early Buddhist teaching, is the refusal of the Buddha to define something very precisely, much to the chagra of the later commentarial tradition who has tried to expand the teaching the Buddha left on the citta with great systems and has tried to identify individual aspects of that citta. But we could say very briefly the three major functions of the citta are. Um, Fundamental sensitivity, so picking up things. The, the most uh, fundamental layer of the citta is that it is sensitive. The next layer of the citta is that it produces sankharas, it produces impulses, it produces volition. We could go at some length into this topic, but not tonight. Um, in other words, we process what we have picked up through our senses, and we respond or react on that second layer by producing uh, impulses of wish, of uh, desire, of um, re revulsion. Some things we find rebarbative and we try to push them away. Some things we try, uh, we find attractive and we try to get more of them or vary them or get it a little slower or make sure we have enough for it tomorrow as well. Yeah? So we respond not just sensorially to our experience but also with affective states. That's a huge chunk of the chitta's activities, responding what I want and what I don't want. On a third level, the chitta, and this most important, understands. It is intrinsically capable of understanding. That's its major function in terms of liberation. Now, to cut a long story short, that third function comes in a lot more effectively if the first two functions are subdued. The more our chitta is preoccupied with handling sensory input or with reactions upon that sensory input, the less it has capacity to actually deeply and profoundly understand. Um, so these Brahma-viharas are, um, let's translate them. Um, for me, they are differing tones of universal empathy. They have two major functions. One of them is that they are inherent. In other words, we cannot lose them. And the other one is that they are boundless. In other words, they are not limited or they are not bound. Uh, the texts tell us what what 
what is the delimiter for the Brahma Viharas is greed, hatred and delusion. So, um, which brings us to the very simple conclusion that the four Brahma Viharas at their highest level are basically the expressions of a mind that is completely freed. So if you know any enlightened folk, then this is how they're expected to behave. Loving, friendly, compassionate and resonating, joyous, capable of having uh, experiencing appreciation and being able to rejoice. And finally, that they are um, serene and that they are equanimous. So if you know any enlightened people who do not behave that way, I uh, suggest you scratch on their surface a little bit and see if and adjust your notion of enlightenment or uh, reconsider your relationship to, to those folks if they insist on being enlightened and behave differently. Um, so that's basically the top notch. Now you notice all of these four Brahma Viharas are relational aspects. Yeah? Even equanimity, Buddhism's most misunderstood quality, is a relational aspect. It doesn't mean I've written off left and right everything. You know, I'm completely unassailable because you, you don't count anymore. <laughs> so I'm really unshakable now. <laughs> yeah, that, that is not equanimity. That is its um, near enemy, uh, of which later... So the thing to understand is that these Brahma-viharas are the practice for the human realm. Yeah. They are that which we practice in the relational domain. And, you know, even if you think of yourself as a single and you feel that you've given up on relationships, um, the, the news is you, you cannot give up on relationship. The smallest unit of experience is not two. The sorry, the smallest unit of experience is two, is not one. Yeah? You're always in relationship. Even if you're alone on the moon, you're still in relationship to your own experience, to your own mind, and to your own heart. Yeah? We experience ourselves in dual modes. Yeah? You can think of non-duality what you want, your senses operate in dual ways. Yeah? There is something in here that experiences that as if there is something out there. We know this is not true. Half of what you think is out there is happening in here anyway. And what is happening out there, you don't actually have a very clear idea because it's highly um, customized by your sensory functioning or your available attention or your degree of appreciation or the amount of time at hand. <laughs> yeah. All these factors are strongly conditioning what you actually get of that apparent world out there. But that, we have to leave that for another evening. So these Brahma-viharas are affecting the citta. The citta is a place where the heart and the mind, as, I as in intellect, are not yet separated. Huh? So. And these Brahma-viharas have uh, appear not just for enlightened or awakened beings, as I have just pointed out, but they also appear on its most fundamental level as inherent qualities of the human heart. These Brahma-viharas are a gift. We cannot lose them. Yeah? On that level, the Brahma-viharas are basically they're hardwired. Yeah? 
there's a hardwired capacity for you to be caring and friendly, to be uh, resonant with pain in others, to be joyous and to be in relationship and equanimous. You may not have developed this, you may have forgotten this, this may be occluded, you may do horrible things despite this fundamental capacity. But ultimately, in the Buddha's books, this is what makes human beings human. This is what constitutes our humanity, that we are fundamentally capable of relating to others and relating to ourselves. You'll see in the long run that that doesn't really make that much of a difference in loving and caring and friendly ways, in ways that are resonant both with pain or unhappiness in others and with joy and success in others. And most importantly, that we're able to relate with others and leaving them intact and independent. Yeah? Or uh, maybe independent is not quite as accurate as I wish. Uh, we leave their autonomy intact and still relate to them in kind ways. So the on the inherent, that's the inherent part of these Brahma Viharas. Now for some unfortunate reasons, which I promise not to lament to, tonight any further, uh, Buddhist commentarial tradition has uh, not really favored that particular aspect of the Brahma Viharas and sidelined Brahma Vihara teaching uh, largely as a meditation object teaching. In other words, Brahma Viharas are either emotions or they're meditation objects. That is true. Brahma Viharas are meditation objects and um, when it comes to emotions I would beg to differ. I have an ongoing argument particularly with psychologists who keep telling me that Brahma Viharas are basically complex emotions and uh, I keep insisting that they are not complex emotions because emotions are states and if Brahma Viharas are states you have lost them as inherent qualities. Yeah. Any state is impermanent and any uh, state uh, is transitory. And if you are not experiencing that state, the Brahma Vihara is gone. Yeah. Now it is important to understand that you can practice uh, loving kindness or friendliness if you are not feeling loving and friendly. It is perfectly possible. In fact, it is very necessary <laughs> that you practice these qualities when you do not feel that way. Yeah. because they can be affirmed as intentions. Yeah. You can in engender these qualities in your heart by using skillful means. And if you suspect yourself of not being capable of Brahma Viharas because you happen to have a little attack of rage or gloominess or you're feeling a little uh, misanthropic right now, then this is very sad. Because you suddenly find yourself falling out of a major aspect of Buddhist teaching and practice. You suddenly find yourself a little zombie-like. And it's good to know in such a moment, even though you may feel zombie-like, actually you are not a zombie. You're a human being capable of relating in, in forms of universal empathy, even though these forms may not be very um, overt as available paradigms of your mind right now. So on a second layer, we have these Brahma Viharas as uh, qualities of mind. 
the most important aspect on that second layer is that they are virtues. Now, the kick of virtues is that you can recognize them, even in others. You can um, affirm them when they happen. You can admire them if they don't happen, but you see them in others taking place. And you can strengthen them when they do take place. The great thing about the virtue is you can do it. You can practice it. Yeah. That starts at its most simple, simplest, probably, with admiration. Um, if we admire something, we already begin to resemble this. Often is our response to seeing qualities in others, not admiration, but envy. <laughs> and that has a slightly different effect on our own mind. If we admire something, then um, we recognize that what we admire is of intrinsic value. And even though we don't seem to be in possession of it, or we don't seem to embody it, we do see that value. And the fact that we associate with that value by it attending to it, acknowledging it, seeing its manifestation and so forth, the process of beginning to emulate what we see as a value has actually already begun. Yeah. If conversely I am envious of something, I seem I use the quality I see there, yeah, which is a plus, and instead of instead of seeing it out there as a plus, I uh, conjure up my self-construct and find my self-construct wanting by that amount of virtue over there. Yeah, in other words, I make this number here deficient. I affirm a notion of self, and what is a virtue out there becomes a deficiency in here. In other words, not just have I affirmed my self-construct, I've actually made my self-construct a little bit more miserable. That's what envy does in, ter in psychological terms. That's why it is crucial that we learn to admire even the things which seem out of our reach. So Brahma-viharas, um, on that second layer, as in the social dimension uh, and in the, in the psychological dimension, are things we are encouraged to abide in. They are things we are encouraged to cultivate. They are things we are encouraged to spend much time doing. Um, they are the ones, these things, they have tremendous benefits. They connect, connect us to others. They um, create meaning in our lives and, and appreciation. They, they are some of the most value-creating things in our lives. Yeah? You know, this value comes from emotions now. Buddhists are supposed to observe everything and wait till it's over and then be completely placid. Um, and stay away from emotions because they're dangerous and confusing. Stay away from thoughts because they're endless and pointless. And they're supposed to transform themselves as quickly and as effectively as possible into meditating mummies, basically. <laughs> so. The teaching on Brahmaviharas say something different. They say, um, we have a connection to others, sometimes despite our uh, intentions and sometimes despite our statements. Have you ever felt, God, I wish this guy was not so close to my heart as he is? Yeah, I've, I've felt that many times. Yeah, just 
being annoyed about somebody or just feeling myself invaded or preoccupied because somebody I just cared for and my relationship to that somebody wasn't very good at that moment and I just wished that this somebody was a lot less meaningful in my life than he or she was. Yeah. So Brahma Viharas on that level um, are the grease for human relationship. They are the practice. When we practice with other humans, this is what we uh, encounter. We encounter both when we engage in tones of this empathy on, and we encounter the opposite. We encounter the pain when it is not like that. On the third level, we have the Brahma Viharas as, as meditative practices proper. We have Brahma Viharas as something we cultivate in a meditative way. We take it up as a formal meditative object or a formal meditative process and we are trying to suffuse our mind with these qualities and expand outwards. Yeah? Um, some traditions see in Brahma Vihara practice as meditative objects, primarily a samatha object, an object to cultivate stillness of mind. Yeah? It is no secret that a mind that is capable of, say, uh, friendliness or loving-kindness has easier access to greater stillness. In fact, if you want to prevent your mind from becoming still, just engage in mild aversion, sort of. Yeah? It doesn't have to be loud aversion, just a little bit, two, three drops of vinegar in your blood and you're just kind of a sort of low-level seething. Yeah? <laughs> This will prevent you, if you're afraid of deepening meditation states, just uh, cultivate things you don't like. You know? Think about them. Hate them. You know? Don't expend your forces straight away, just hate them slowly and, you know, sustain in sustainable ways. Yeah? So that will prevent uh, very effectively you falling into deep samadhi states, you know, in case you're afraid of those. Um, let me say something about the individual quality. Metta, often translated as loving-kindness, actually has its etymological roots much closer with friendliness, friendship. It is a warmth that is directed, that is specific, it is specifically to, um, directed to someone or something, you can have uh, metta towards the pain in your knee, you can have metta towards the pain itself, which has to do over, over time because it's already, uh, you know, late. And you, know. Uh, you can have metta for the knee that has to experience the pain, you can have metta for your own impatience with the pain you think you shouldn't have anymore, you can have metta for the mind that has both the pain and the impatience, you can have metta for the whole thing on all levels. So. It doesn't have to be a human being. And it can even be a dead human being, despite what commentaries tell you. you know, it's perfectly all right to experience metta, um, irrespective of the object, animate, inanimate, dead or alive. It's going to be good for you. Yeah. So don't hesitate. Now, metta alone will probably not make you completely free, but it will help you immense immensely to feel more um, related, to feel uh, connected, 
to be with things that may not be as easy and it has all kinds of psychological benefits it makes you more content it makes you less prone to desire for example it makes you makes you less prone to ill will um, the texts tell us that you you um, you sleep well you fall asleep easily so in other words meta raises melatonin levels um, um, Obviously, this is a bit haphazard. We haven't done enough RCTs on this one, but if you practice meta, you may not need an RCT study. You may just find out that it works. Um, this many, many uh, such advantages. We all know that we like to be related to in friendly terms. We all grow better in friendly terms. We all learn better when we're not intimidated um, under duress and uh, and experiencing somebody else's hostility. We all find being met with metta offers a space that is incredibly useful for trust, for deepening acknowledgement, for um, owning things that are maybe not as easy to own as, you know, as we would wish. And it's pleasant. Yeah. The suttas are very laconic and say, um, if he is happy, his mind will concentrate. In other words, uh, we are explicitly asked to create joy and friendliness as conditions that enable us to deepen our meditative practice. The Anapanasati Sutta has a passage where it says, uh, one of the 16 stages, where it says, one of the jobs is to abhipamodanang chitang, to gladden the mind. Yeah, So, a very close relative of... Uh, Friendliness is gladness. In other words, when we are friendly, often gladness is near at hand. So metta is what connects us in immediate way to something completely impersonal in the other. You know, it's specific, but we don't want to get anything back. Yeah. It is selfless. That's a very powerful connection. So often when we like something, we want to get something out there. You know, I'd like to make you smile, or I'd like to uh, make you fall in love with me, or I'd like you to give me money, or I'd like you to... Yeah? So I relate to you and try to gain your favors and try to, you know, whatever I have to sell or whatever I try to obtain from you, get that by making you like me. Yeah? That is not meta. Metta is not sympathy. You can have metta for people you have no sympathy. This is important to understand. You do not have to like somebody before you can have metta for them. You do not have to like your knee pain before you can have metta for your pain and for your knee and for the mind that experiences this. So it's not a straightforward emotion of like. And you, your task of practicing metta is not getting you to like everything. I'm not asking you to like pain, for example. <laughs> yeah. But you, the cheapest level of metta is you offer coexistence. Yeah. You say, I'm not trying to get rid of you. You're allowed to be here. Welcome. I don't really love you, but welcome nevertheless. That's the lowest threshold of metta. Anything below that is no longer. <laughs> yeah? But you offer coexistence. You notice how dreadful it is if 
you do not offer somebody coexistence in your world. Yeah? How futile it is to try to negotiate values if you basically say, look, it would be better if you were gone. Yeah? The solution to my problem is if you are gone. That is not the basis for negotiating. It's not the basis for harmony, for meeting at all. Any look in contemporary politics will tell you that. Yeah. So the beginning for metta is that I welcome and I offer you coexistence in my world. Yeah. In terms of meditation, metta would be something like orienting towards, moving in, welcoming, sustaining interest, creating availability and holding relationship. Yeah? As meditators, if you want to translate what metta means in sober psychological steps, it's these, these steps. It's orienting interest, approaching, seeking, connecting, reaching out, welcoming whatever there is, creating availability, and beginning to resonate and sustain that relationship. Yeah? That is what metta is. That's what you do with your friend when you say, how are you? Yeah. And your friend will feel that. And he will feel that you have capacity and space and are interested. And he or she may respond to that. The next one is interesting. It's a big Buddhist virtue, karuna. <coughs> In fact, <coughs> the older term for this is called anukampa, and that means trembling along. Yeah? Anukampati, to tremble along with something. That's the, that's the word that is often used in the old text. So, I am feeling what you feel, and I tremble along with you. Yeah? In other words, I create a space here in this heart, and I allow you to come in there. And I am b beginning to resonate with what you feel. Yeah? I take up the trembling you experience. It's a very, very potent image, I believe. It does something very strong for me when I tell you this. It is probably our most profound connection we can have to others. It is through this capacity of relating to others' pain and unhappiness and suffering that I am... On a very deep level, in touch with you, connected with you. It is my capacity from experience of pain myself to feel your pain that calls me into a profound relationship. We are both sufferers, we are both uh, experiencing loss, we are both experiencing fear and disappointment and the passing of good things. We both share that. Even with your worst enemy, you share that. Yeah. So in many ways, one way of connecting very, very deeply, very quickly is getting in touch with somebody else's pain. The commentarial tradition insists that the antidote to aversion is metta. And that is true, but it's only partially true. Uh, uh, practicing uh, metta cultivates a mind that is not just loving when the metta is manifest, but also 
the mind is um, primed in ways that make it difficult for aversion to arise or when it arises that make it difficult for it to take root there. So metta is an exquisite uh, practice to avoid aversion as a sort of a prophylactic practice, yeah? as an intervention practice when the mind already is averse, metta is not very effective. If you're already experiencing aversion and you're trying to practice metta on top, it's, well, try it out. But for me, it always felt like it's kind of like <coughs> sugarcoating a cow pad, you know. <laughs> it's, it's kind of, yeah, it's got a sugar coat, but it's, you know, it is a cow pad. But what I have found is very, very potent is actually acknowledging the pain in somebody else. It's not difficult to see pain in people. It's not difficult to see. Uh, as if you're a therapist, you know that. It's very easy to see pathology. Yeah. It's a lot more difficult to actually meet the health in somebody or connect with the health or help to strengthen somebody's own sense of his or her health yeah, rather than uh, diagnose them away and leave them with the, with the name and the label and the number maybe. <coughs> or a, a drug even. <laughs> so, but connecting with somebody's pain yeah, has always ha made it very obvious to me that I cannot hold the somebody else as completely other, as completely alien, as completely you know, the enemy, or somebody uh, I can maintain hostility towards. If I connect with somebody's pain, there's something in me that goes soft. Yeah. I'm not saying squishy or so, but it's just I recognize in his or her pain the humanity of that being. And I recognize a kinship. And that has always been much more effective for me in terms of overcoming aversion. And I, I have a fair share of that <laughs> practice. Yeah. So I'm, as far as averse people go, I'm, I'm gifted. Yeah. <laughs> The crucial thing about that second uh, quality of Brahma-vihara, that uh, karuna, is it is not just a feeling, it's not just a resonance with pain. You know, empathy, the word alone, would probably suffice for that. But the Buddhist notion of karuna couples this capacity to resonate with the degree of suffering in somebody else with a profound wish to help a profound wish to help this being to either overcome this suffering or to alleviate that suffering if I can't immediately help it uh, to overcome. If I cannot um, make that suffering go away for somebody, at least I may be able to help. Or if I may not be able to help, at least I may be able to comfort. And if I not be able to comfort, at least I may stay with this other being and not let him or her alone. Huh? So the, the sensitivity is combined with a degree of very transformative action. Yeah. I am capable not just of feeling, but I'm also capable of doing something. That's important. Buddhist iconography has 
compassion is, is active. It's, uh, if you look at Avalokiteshvara, he's got many, many arms, Buddhist bodhisattva of compassion, and uh, it's also got a wrathful aspect, yeah, with, with a hatchet and a few other bow and arrow. This guy can do things, this guy can protect, yeah. He can look after things. He's not just kind of wringing his hands in helplessness and say, oh God, yeah, it really hurts, I'm sorry for you. It can put, you can do something. So that's maybe a difference to the word empathy in English. You have to decide, you're the native speakers here. So the profound sensitivity is combined with a profound willingness and also skillfulness in helping, in engaging with that suffering. Mudita uh, means I resonate. Like compassion, it's a form of resonating. If you take that little example of the establishing the relationship that happens through metta and friendliness, then the resonance with compassion is more with the painful side of the experience of somebody else and the resonance with mudita is more the joyous, the successful, the celebratory aspect with uh, what's happening in another person's life. If you happen to um, find things that give rise to joy in your own life, then this is also called mudita. So it's not just sympathetic joy, it's also just joy, pure and plain. If you recognize goodness in yourself and you, you find joy in this, this also is mudita. This is, a, in a way, not so close as compassion. Yeah? Compassion arises reasonably quickly, even for people whose language we don't share, whose religion we may not uh, f be greatly respectful of, um, whose uh, culture or appearance is very, very different to ours. Uh, compassion can jump very quickly over all these uh, seeming differences. Mudita that seems more difficult. Yeah. It seems that we are capable of mudita largely for people who have already a fairly close relationship to us. Yeah. The um, German philosopher Schopenhauer at some point uh, in his early life, <coughs> in one of his um, writings, which he tried to gain, gain a price with, um, used without knowing much about Buddhism then, uh, in fact, without knowing anything about Buddhism in those days, um, he based an ethics. That was the task of this uh, academy. Said, you know, philosophers tell us what is the basis of ethics, and he claimed the basis of ethics was compassion. A very beautiful terse text. If you ever have a chance, um, um, read it. He 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 lost his plot a bit towards the end because he started uh, not very compassionately to rail against his major competitor, which he had a <laughs> profound lifelong contempt. who was a very successful philosopher named Hegel. Um, and uh, he, he, he lost his plot a bit and railed against him uh, on the last three pages. Um, and I suspect that's what uh, basically brought him uh, to not receive the prize. That's what brought, you know, made him lose the prize. Because the, the piece of text is actually ingenious. And it's very interesting that a man who comes from a very different world and with not, not much later in his life when he had a few uh, access to some texts, 
that came via the Persian and French corner into his hands. He, he was fond of Buddhism, but in those days when he wrote that, he, he knew nothing about it. So he, it was his own understanding that... And he wasn't, if you know anything about his life, you know, his social skills are not what he is most famous for. Um, he kept replacing a little dog that he loved and uh, calling them the same name, and this was <laughs> probably his closest friend. Um, but this man has understood that the heart connects most deeply with that which is painful. I don't know what you, I'm sure you have a saying in English, but the French have something they say that the, 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 the says, um, la même souffrance unis mille fois que la même joie, the same, the same suffering unifies us a thousand times more than the sh than, than shared joys. So shared suffering is a lot more bonding. Yeah. So there's something profound, and we know that, or from many angles we know that, that we connect with others through shared pain. The shared joy is uh, something uh, our culture needs a lot of um, work. Our spontaneous response to other people getting good stuff is jealousy and envy often enough. Yeah? We feel we missed out or they don't deserve it or we, we, we're being done injustices too. Um, Buddhist teaching tells us the capacity to engage with, engage the heart and fill the heart with joy makes us content. It's the counter agent to discontent. It makes us connected. It's a counteragent to isolation. Yeah. Both karuna and mudita are that which takes us out of isolation most profoundly. Yeah. This is true for all four of those Brahma-viharas, that whenever we engage in these tones of universal empathy, we do the opposite of engaging from a position of constricted selfhood as opposed to other and world. Yeah? Whenever we are in the state of Brahma-vihara, when we experience the state of when we cultivate the intention, and be it only as a humble little wish, yeah? may all beings be well, as a humble little wish. I don't need to feel particularly effusive when I say that. I can affirm this as the beginning of the practice of metta by affirming the wish that other beings may be well. When I experience this, obviously I feel connected. But even pronouncing this wish already establishes the beginnings of such a connection. So the ills of our day, isolation, alienation, uh, me meaninglessness, disempowerment, you know, these are ills. If, you, if you're a therapist, you know what I talk of. Uh, these things are rampant in our societies and they are attenuated profoundly when we practice mudita, when we practice karuna. Yeah. Upeka is an interesting one. It is not a sort of stoic, unshakableness. The word etymologically means it's, it says, it speaks of two things, of panoramically looking down and across. That's one thing. So seeing things before oneself and seeing so impartially. So impartiality is one, one um, component of upeka. And the other component is that it is big. Yeah? 
Upeka still is a relational quality. That's important to know. I am still in connection with you when I am equanimous. I am still wishing you well, but I let you in your intactness be different than I am. I acknowledge boundaries, for example. Again, therapist, absolutely crucial. Yeah? I acknowledge that there is responsibility on your side as well. I acknowledge that there are limits to my powers and my influence. I acknowledge that there are conditions taking place in your life that I cannot influence anymore. So, in Buddhist speak, you would say, Upeka understands karma. Yeah? Karma as uh, the fact that there are consequences to our actions and that these consequences uh, cannot be taken away by goodwill. Yeah. That my actions will have results. And even if you mean well with me, you cannot necessarily take away the results that I have created in m through my own actions or inactions. Yeah. So Upeka, if experienced, leaves us with a sense of spaciousness, it leaves us with a sense of non-reactivity, and it leaves us also with a sense of one somebody else's strength, responsibility and intactness. I recognize the perfect in this moment. Yeah. I recognize the power of transformation that lies even in bad things. Yeah. I recognize the intrinsic okayness, the possibility that something that looks like a horrible botched job can turn into something powerful, can transform. And I acknowledge this at that very moment. In terms of loftiness, emotional loftiness, if you want to make a chart, um, you know, Upeka is the, the loftiest of the um, resonances of the human heart in Buddhist psychology. That is, um, Brahma Viharas also have enemies. And sometimes it helps to look at the enemy and to, you know, we understand more clearly what the thing is about. So, uh, the enemies are not actually there in the suttas. Um, they are, uh, the commentaries take pains to elucidate us on them. And I think they make a lot of sense. So the, there's two enemies to every of the Brahma Viharas. <coughs> A near enemy and a far enemy. The near enemy is the enemy that waits right outside your house, where you feel still safe and in the vicinity of your domicile, but actually the enemy is already upon you. Yeah? That's what the near enemy does. And the far enemy is when you are at, at the furthest away from home and easily fall prey to uh, such an enemy. So the near enemy for metta is greed. Metta is capable of seeing the good in others. It is immediately capable of connecting with quality and value in others. Yeah. And so is greed, only uh, with slightly other motive. Yeah. Greed also sees value in things. Greed also wants to connect with goodness. Yeah. But there is an ac uh, not acquiescent, uh, acquisitiveness connected to this. Yeah. So, you see... Both greed and metta see the good. Yeah. But greed obviously is connected with wanting to have it, own it, take it away, drag it in your cave, 
possess it, eat it, yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um, and metta does the same, but it does not volitionally um, go in this direction. It recognizes the good without the acquisitiveness. The far enemy is diametrically opposed. The far enemy of metta is ill will. It's wishing somebody bad. Yeah. I remember school, collective ill will practice in my school days. You know, it's time for dictation and we know it's going to come. She's going to come up that stairs and we dare say, break your leg, break your leg, break your leg, break your leg. <laughs> That's collective ill will. <laughs> Thanks to our uncultivated minds, then we didn't really engender enough power to <laughs> make, <laughs> make this happen. But wishing somebody pain or suffering or this is ill will. We uh, do more of that than we tend to admit to ourselves. Yeah. Serves a right. Yeah. <laughs> it's easy uh, to engage in a sort of a little bit of punitive ill will. The near enemy of Karuna <coughs> is, um, or the literally, it's the tr translation is uh, the the villagers distraught yeah we are resonant with the pain of somebody else and we basically jump into the same hole so rather than being able to help somebody who is in a uh, dire situation we commiserate with them by jumping into the same hole and celebrating our own helplessness in other words we take up the emotional resonance and are disconnected from our actual tools and skills to help yeah so that's the near enemy. The far enemy is cruelty. Now cruelty is something we don't tend to admit that we are cruel. And I again would say we are probably more cruel than we would like to admit. Uh, cruelty has many, many forms, but um, one of them is, is not responding, is saying, I do not care. The systematic refusal to care, to acknowledge, to validate. It's simple. She's saying hello in the morning and I just don't say hello. No. Systematically. We just, or I just wait. I, I keep waiting till they have groveled and then I acknowledge their presence. Unless they have groveled, I'm not acknowledging. Or somebody wants to come and apologize and, you know, is distraught and you're just not available. You're not responding. You're not taking the call. When you see the number on the display, you're just letting them hit the answer machine. Um, <coughs> you say, okay, she's feeling bad, but now she's, you know, so she's right. She's going to stay there for a while. She's not going to be let in for the next three days. So you, you refuse to resonate. You refuse to acknowledge. You refuse to help. There's many forms of cruelty. Uh, interpersonally, that happens a lot. We have power dynamics and we have social rituals. And um, If somebody is in pain and we do not respond to their wish, either to be helped or to their wish to make amends for something they feel they have uh, done, then these are already forms of cruelty. Yeah. It's the active 
joy we take in the suffering of another. Um, The near enemy of mudita (coughs) is something called party spirit. It's uh, the wish to join the fun without really connecting with the the reason for celebration. Look, I'm not really interested whether it's a funeral or whether it's a birthday party, but all I see, there's booze, basically, and I'm, I'm, I'm game. Yeah. So, uh, this is the near enemy. It's I want to have part of the fun without really actually connecting with what the fun is about. I just want to... Um, the suttas are sweet when they speak of it. They say, when you are afflicted by this, then you keep asking... Where is singing? Where is dancing? Where is drumming? (laughs) 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 The far enemy of Mudita is Arati. (coughs) Arati is one of Mara's daughters. Mara is the the guy who uh, sends the boys around in your meditation practice and troubles you. He is also bo- he is not just boys. He's also got girls. So one of his girls, some of them are pretty and some of them are not. Arati is not. Uh, she is discontent. Yeah. Somebody who has walked many hours on her arm. Um, discontent is the diametrically opposed to mudita, to the capacity to be joyous and sympathetic and resonant with that. We spend probably a lot of time, our societies are good at producing discontent. Many uh, of you are experiencing discontent with yourself, with with the scene here, with the teaching, with Buddhism, with your knees, with the cushion, with the food, with the bed, with the snoring behind the wall. It's easy to find reasons for discontent. And discontent is a major issue in our societies, we know that. So... Murita is directly opposed to this, easy enough to understand. The near enemy of <coughs> Upeka is indifference. The near enemy of equanimity is not feeling the other, it is indifference. It looks quite sa- similar, but it refuses to acknowledge relationship. It means I'm happy and peaceful because I don't care <laughs> what's going on with you. You're fine, doesn't matter. You're bad, doesn't matter. I'm here and all is fine. So indifference as the non-availability for the other, as the relational refusal. And that makes, uh, uh, makes the near enemy. The far enemy is something we already know. It is <coughs> resistance and patiga, uh, dosa, greed and Um, resistance against uh, basically our experience or other people. It's the same enemies as we know them from Metta. So they throw things a little bit in perspective, isn't it? These far and near enemies. So if you're not sure what these qualities are, friendliness, compassion, loving uh, joy, uh, or sympathetic joy and equanimity, think of the enemies you get a clearer picture, you know, they kind of come into relief a little bit. Um, the tradition speaks of images of motherhood in, uh, to um, 
illustrate these qualities. So the image of motherhood for, for the first one, for Metta, is the image of a mother with her newborn child, completely in love with it, you know, following it with greatest of ease, any move, any expression, any change in her child, she is reciprocating with her attention. Yeah. The image uh, for Karuna is the image of a mother whose child is sick and who does everything to make that child suffer less which may mean she sacrifices sleep, which may mean she procures medicine, which may mean she uh, is willing even to inflict pain uh, if it is for the good of the child. She's basically w committed to do anything that minimizes the suffering of her child. Yeah. Not following every whim of the child or um, not just feeling the pain of the child, but also doing things. The image, the mother image for Mudita is the image of a mother that rejoices in the successes of her child when it starts to grow. Yeah? Speaks, does the first steps, gets a college degree. Yeah? It's the celebratory and jubilatory nature of a heart that sees success of somebody you're close to and care for. And the image for Upeka is the image of a mother that has a grown-up child and has to let this grown-up child go and make their own decisions. Even though the mother might make the better decisions, uh, she knows that she can't do these decisions. Even if she did better decisions, she would thereby weaken the child in his own finding his own steps or her own steps. So, uh, much more could be said, but let me end here. Thank you for your patience and for your attention and uh, bear those in your hearts. These are powerful teachings and um, powerful, even more powerful practices. Yeah. Let's take a minute and then... I ring a bell and then Yana will tell us what we continue doing. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.